Hi, and welcome to the very first Mind and Money podcast of 2022. This is the podcast where we delve into how your psychology affects your finances. I'm Becky O'Connor, Head of Pensions and Savings at Interactive Investor, and I'm joined as ever by the one and only Greg Davies, who's Head of Behavioural Finance at Oxford Risk. This feels like a great topic to be starting the year off with as people plan their finances. And hopefully they do try to take some control over their financial choices and their investments at this time of year. Today we're going to be talking about fate and control and whether or not we believe in fate or whether we believe that our life is more in our own hands has any bearing on our financial well-being. It's often said that our choices in life are half chance, but is that true? And do some of us tend to believe that our lives are more governed by the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, to quote Hamlet? And if so, does that affect what we do with our money? So, Greg, is life done to you or by you? What a question to start the year. Yes, <laughs> small, small philosophical conundrum to start the year with. Well, I, I, the answer to all these things as ever, I think, is um, it depends but it depends on some interesting things when it comes to investing. And in particular, I think time horizon is, is absolutely vital here. So over short time periods, you know, the days, the weeks, the months, very much it's done to us. There's very little we can do to control what's happening in the markets or what's happening with our investments. Over longer time periods, however, we can choose to structure our finances in ways that makes us better able to take advantage of the regularities of the world so we can have a program for rebalancing our assets as we observe what goes up and what goes down. We can decide how much risk we're going to take in our portfolio. We're going to decide how much of our cash we contribute into the investment markets. These are big structural decisions that mean we can actually take control. We can control our response to the regularities of the environment in a way that really helps us. The problem comes is that many of us think or like to think that we have control over the shorter time periods as well. And we start taking all sorts of actions which at best are a bit fruitless, but because every time we buy and sell something in the stock market, we have to pay for the, the pleasure, actually most short-term actions whilst we might think we have control over what's going on around us, actually are just going to cost us money in the long term. Okay, so how do we know if we're making short-term decisions and short-term actions or whether they're for the long term? For instance, I know now that I'm thinking about, you know, what investments I'm going to put into my pension and they're long-term decisions, sure, but I'm making them in the short term. So how can we sort of work out what we're, you know, whether we're looking at the short term or long term? Well, I think a lot depends on your frame of mind when you're going into it. So what questions are you asking yourself when you're deciding where to put that money? Are you asking yourself, what do I think is going to go up or down this year in 2022? Are you saying, you know, what do I think a good bet is this year? Or are you asking yourself, when I think about the next 15 or 20 years, where is the gap in my portfolio that needs filling? And the more that we can put ourselves in the position where we are thinking about our objectives 15 or 20 years away, and we are thinking about our wealth in the whole rather than this investment now, we're broadening the frame, we're, we're broadening our horizon, and we're more likely to be making decisions that are, are less us trying to pretend we have control over a world that we don't really have control over. So in a way, it's knowing what is within your control and you know thinking about your life rather than what's happening in the wider world. Absolutely. And it's very easy for us to have the illusion of control in, in investing. You know, there's this, there's this old example of a, a fortunately illegal marketing ploy. But you can imagine if you sent a thousand possible clients a letter and 
each of these people got one of two letters. Either I predict the market's going to go up this week or I predict the market's going to go down this week. And you send them out, 500 get the up letter, 500 get the down letter. And at the end of that week, you're going to be right for half of those people. And so for those 500 people, the next week, you send out another set of up or down letters and half of them get cut out. By the end of about eight or 10 weeks, you're left with only a handful of people. But every one of those people think that you're an absolute investing genius because you have managed to predict the, the direction of the market correctly eight, nine, 10 weeks in a row. Now, those people might believe in your skill, whereas the skill is actually just randomness. You have sent out random letters. Every week, you're going to be right half the time, and you're cherry picking the ones that, that you're following up on. And this is how you know we as humans can be very quickly fooled by randomness, fooled by, by chance out there. And we look for patterns. As humans, we are always looking for patterns. And when we see something, we like to believe that it's because we're clever or because it's our skill or because we can predict the market. Whereas often, actually, what we're just seeing is complete random chance. And, and we need to stop chasing this past performance. That's really interesting that we have a predisposition towards believing in patterns. And I wonder if that means that we are more predisposed to a kind of fatalism or to believing that we have more control, because that could go either way, couldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is an interesting point. There is a, um, a psychometric scale that is used in, in psychology quite a lot called the locus of control. And like all of these scales, it's there to split people apart. There are people who are high on the scale and there are people who are, who are low. But if you have a high internal locus of control, it means you are naturally that sort of person who's predisposed to think that you control the world, that, that good outcomes are because of your hard work, because of your skill, because of your effort, etc. Whereas if you're at the other side of the scale, if you have a, an external locus of control, you are more inclined to be fatalistic, to think that what you do doesn't really have an influence on the world and the world just happens to you and it's all fate or acts of God or whatever. Now, the interesting thing here is people fall on both sides of those scales. In fact, most of us are somewhere in the middle. We have a little bit of both. But there is something of an innate predisposition that some people are more likely to think that they're in control of the world and other people are more likely to, to look for explanations that the world is in control of them. And I think the interesting thing about this is if you find out where you sit on that scale, it can be very useful to you as an investor because it can mean that you can start to control not the world, but some of your responses to the world, some of your own biases. If you know that you're the sort of person who constantly thinks you're in control of everything, the chances are you are more likely to trade too much, to place too many bets in the short term, to be thinking that you know you, you can buy sheer willpower and effort go out and change the value of your investment portfolio. And you can put in place rules to help protect you against that. If on the other side, you're the person who thinks that the world happens to you, that itself can be dangerous because it might mean that you never go out and take the active steps to take control of those things in your portfolio that you can control. Put in place the rebalancing strategy, put your cash to work. If you're a complete fatalist, you know, the question then becomes, why, why would you ever get out of bed in the morning if the world's just going to happen to you? So either extreme on this locus of control scale can be detrimental to you. And as humans, our, our best bet is to figure out, well, where do I sit? Where are my biases? And therefore, how do I start to structure my decision making to make better use of the fact that I know I'm biased in some way? And if I'm biased towards acting too much, I start to put in rules that slow me down, that put in pause points. And if I'm biased towards acting too little, I start to look for 
I don't know, people to chiver me, chiver me along. I look for the advisor who's going to, who's going to give me a good set of rules, etc. I mean, I would think that somebody who has more of a sense of control over their finances would probably end up better off ultimately. You're saying that's not always the case with investing, but surely the odds are that if you're doing more and taking more control, then you've got a better chance of a better outcome ultimately. Well, you do, but again, it comes back to this question of what are your, what are your actions being led by? If your version of control is constantly trying to predict which shares are going to be up and down towards the end of today, and you're, you're over-trading, you're jumping in and out of things all the time, you're chasing past performance or whatever went up last week, you're buying this week, all you're really going to be doing is incurring huge transaction costs. And you're going to be costing yourself money because you're chasing things that really aren't in your control, things that are, are just down to luck. And separating luck from skill in investing is, is very difficult, but it is fair to say that the shorter term your decisions, the greater the proportion of luck is in, in your investing decisions. Michael Mabusan has this wonderful book called The Success Equation, and in it he starts to compare investing with a whole lot of sports. And, and he lo he's looking to see, can we discern how much luck or how much skill is involved in, in each of these things? So to give an example, you know, something like chess, for example, is a lot of skill involved in that. Typically, two people sit down to play chess and the one who is the more skillful will win. Whereas if you get to team sports or where there's a lot of interaction between multiple people or sports that are very complex or reliant on the weather, then you can have two teams facing off each other and it's very much less likely that, that the more skilled one would win. And he places investing, look, using a lot of clever statistics and data, etc. he places investing right down towards the luck end of the spectrum. It is much closer to rolling a roulette wheel than it is to playing chess. And I think that the question that I find very insightful is his statement. He said, if you ever want to know whether something is luck or skill, ask yourself whether you could lose on purpose. Now, clearly, I can sit down and play chess and lose on purpose. But in investing, I could place a bet that I think is going to lose me money and find out that actually it goes the other way and I end up making money. Uh, in investing, it is very difficult to win in on purpose and it is equally difficult to lose on purpose, which must mean that there's a lot of luck involved and very little skill. This also supports the idea of passive investing over active strategies for which you generally would pay more as well, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Because in, in active investing, what you're effectively doing is you're paying someone to take control on your behalf. Now, ideally, you're paying for someone who has spent a lot of time training to do that well, thinking about the problem studying the markets, etc. But equally, you know, those people themselves are subject to an environment that has a lot of luck in it. And the question you need to ask then is, am I getting back what I'm paying for? Because if you're paying a, a large fee for someone to go and invest on your behalf, they may well do better than just sitting in a passive fund. But they don't only have to beat the passive fund. They have to beat the passive fund plus all of the fee differential that, that you're paying for them. And it's, it's very interesting. It's, it's statistically, it's very difficult to discern a skill in fund management. You know, a fund manager beating the market one year tells us almost nothing about whether they're skillful or not. They could simply be lucky. A fund manager beating the market 
two years in a row, well, could that be luck? That could still be just, just complete luck. And there was a study that was done some years ago where they said, in order for us to be statistically confident that a given fund manager was genuinely doing well because of their skill, rather than they were just being lucky, how many years in a row would this fund manager have to outperform the market before we could be absolutely confident that they were skillful rather than lucky. And the answer was something in the region of 20 to 25 years. In order to know that this fund manager is worth paying for, you'd have to be able to demonstrate that they have outperformed the market for two decades, by which stage, of course, they've made an awful lot of money and they've retired on an island somewhere. So what, what this tells me is not that you shouldn't ever think about investing in active managers, but you should certainly think about how much you're paying for it. And for the most part, your default, your starting point should be let me do the simple, easy, passive solution with most of my wealth and then maybe look for some active things on the margin and figure out, you know, be very careful about how much you're paying for it. This all sounds as though it favours a set and forget strategy to some extent, like the active fatalist who, who accepts that they have to be in it to win it, if you like, and, and sets up the fund and the tracker and then just leaves it, leaves it up to chance. Yes, and I think it does. You know, we find ourselves very often using gambling terminology when we talk about investing. We talk about taking, a, you know, placing a bet on a stock or a bet in the market. And of course, the thing about gambling is if you go into a casino and you gamble a lot on things that are luck-based, roulette, blackjack, I mean, clearly some of them have a little bit of skill involved, but you can be pretty confident that over time, the house is going to win the casino is going to beat you because the casino is extracting sufficient fee such that on the whole, it's being paid, right? Now, this again comes to this question, this distinction between short-term investing and long-term investing. In the long-term, investing is a bit like gambling, but you are the house. In the long-term investments, you get paid for providing capital to put for others to put to productive use in the economy. In the long term, investing has an expected return that is positive. So taking a long-term decision of put your money to work and leave it alone is actually a gamble that's in your favor. Taking a whole series of short-term bets about which specific things are going up and down, there is a bit like walking into a casino where you're not the house. And so as an investor, it is in fact quite possible to make big structural decisions about how to deploy your wealth that will be in your favor over the long term. But it is equally possible, particularly if you're one of those people with a very internal locus of control, you think you control the world, to effectively be playing against the universe and the universe is the casino and the universe is going to win. I absolutely love the idea of being the house in the long term. I'm going to take that away and use it in lots of pensions commentary. That's an absolute great idea. So briefly then, we've talked about the sort of strategy that will sort of sit nicely between the, the two perceptions, whether you know we believe that the world uh, is something that we can control or whether we're uh, slightly more fatalistic. What would be your tips for somebody who does tend towards a sense of control, and I include myself in that, to sort of rein it back a bit? Well, I think this almost always comes down to making fewer decisions. The more that you think you're in control, particularly if you're also a confident person or an overconfident person, chances are you are making more decisions than you should. You're trading too much. And many of those decisions will, by their definition, be, be quite marginal. So what you should primarily strive to do is to reduce the number of times you trade 
per month, per year. You should reduce the turnover in your portfolio and you should try to only make changes to your portfolio when you have a very good reason you can coherently justify to yourself very clearly. And that might be a rebalancing reason. It, it might be because you've got a gap in your portfolio, but it should very seldom be because I think X is going to go up or because I think X is going to go down. So really it's, it's about just doing less. The flip side is true though as well. I mean, the, the problem with, with fatalism, and this isn't only an investing problem, it isn't about what you do with your investments. Often the biggest problem for people there is they don't ever get around to sorting out their finances because they think, well, the world is just happening to me. I don't need to sit down in January 2022 and figure out how much of my cash I should put into the markets or figure out how to control my spending because the world's just going to happen to me. And things like sitting down with an advisor or sitting down with a spreadsheet and figuring out you know, what your portfolio is, what your wealth situation is, is something that many people avoid because they have the opposite of the of the internal locus of control. They think, well, this if, if you don't believe you have control over the world, then it's difficult to to drive yourself to action because you don't think that anything you are doing is going to have a positive effect on, on, on the world and on your future. And this is where that playing with the house in the long term is so important. There are many, many things that you can do to structure your wealth, to take control that may not do anything for you in the next week or the next month or the next year, but over 5, 10, 15 years, if you are saving that little bit more, if you're investing that little bit more of your savings into the markets rather than leaving it earning nothing in the savings account, these are the actions that cumulatively over long periods of time can make a massive difference to your wealth in the future. There we have it. Active fatalism is, is perhaps way forward. Um, Greg, listen, thank you so much. It's great to start the year with you again. And I look forward to more in the future. And if you've enjoyed listening, please like and subscribe to the Mind and Money podcast. Thank you. Thank you.